Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Friday, March 24th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you're listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Before we dive in, please remember to subscribe, rate us, and help us get our 200th written review on iTunes. And please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Okay, here are the three numbers that we've spent this week thinking about. 22. That is the magic number for House Republicans and healthcare this week. The number of Republican members that they can afford to lose and still pass their big Obamacare repeal bill. President Trump and leadership have been fighting from behind to try and get below that number. Our second data point is the number two. That's how many days it took for the House Intelligence Committee's investigation into Russian meddling in American politics to go off the rails this week. We'll tell you about exactly what happened and why. And finally, our third data point, 26%. That's what right-wing populist Marine Le Pen is getting in French presidential polls right now. And we've got a Politico expert here this week to help us put President Trump and global politics in context with each other. Okay, our first data point this week is the number 22 That is the number of votes House Republicans can afford to lose while trying to pass their Obamacare repeal bill on Friday. And here to talk about it, we have senior reporter Nancy Cook. Thanks for having me. National political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey. And senior politics editor Charlie Matessian, who's geeking out this morning about the Nerdcast shout-out on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast this past week after he mentioned them on a recent episode of the Nerdcast. Okay, I'll admit I'm a little bit excited. I mean... Uh, you know, we deal with, with senators, celebrities all the time here. I'm not impressed by them at all, but I am really impressed and feel like we've really made it because we got mentioned on my favorite podcast and by my favorite <laughs> character on the podcast, Barry Glendening. Like, I feel like Sally Field. You like me. You really like us. You like the Nerdcast. <laughs> all right. Well, Barry, if you're listening, you have you have a very, very thankful fan here. Uh, Nancy, let's jump into healthcare. These 22, 22 votes, that's a magic number. What is in the bill at this point as uh, we kind of race toward a vote on Friday with Donald Trump calling for an end to negotiations, a vote on this morphing, changing health care bill? What's in it right now to try and get those last holdouts to pass this bill? Yeah, so just I will start with the caveat that it is being changed minute by minute. The House Rules Committee is meeting right now, actually, um, to hammer out kind of the final details. But some of the top line things is that in order to get the Freedom Caucus members, they're the far right uh, group in the House on board, what they did within the last few days is strip something called essential health benefits from the bill. And that would just mean that insurers did not were not required to cover a bunch of different things. And that was part of Obamacare. Insurers had to cover, you know, ambulatory services, uh, prescription drugs. It had to cover maternal health care, pediatric visits. So there were these 10 benefits. And basically to get these very conservative people on board, House leadership in the White House stripped out this idea. 
And um, they're sort of working with, uh, to bring more moderates on board, you know, working with some funds that would sort of at the state level cover maternity care. So the details of that are kind of being hammered out right now as we're talking. But that's sort of the key takeaway. And then it would do other things like the delay the implementation of the Cadillac tax. It would eventually roll back Medicaid expansion in the states, which will be a big sticking point in the Senate. Um, But that's kind of where we are right now on actually the policy. Eliana, what do you think the prospects of these kind of concessions winning over some of these hardline Freedom Caucus members who who have been pushing very hard against the bill and seem to be running this process almost, multiple meetings at the White House in a few days, do you think it's going to work? Well, they they may have won over some members of the House Freedom Caucus. At the same time, uh, the more concessions that are made to members of the Freedom Caucus, the more moderates peel off. And so it's I think it, it's very difficult for the president to uh, make concessions to the most conservative members of the Republican conference while retaining the moderates needed to pass the bill. And what I think is very dangerous that President Trump has done is essentially give uh, the House uh, Republican conference an ultimatum saying this is your one and only chance to pass this bill. Um, Vote yes or no. And we're if it doesn't pass, we're abandoning um, all efforts to repeal Obamacare. Um, That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, The Senate could take a crack at this. If this fails, Republicans could go back to the drawing board in the House and uh, and do something again. They don't necessarily have to put this bill up for a vote. But the president is um, really doing a political high wire act. being driven by his sort of uh, flair for drama and an instinctual politics and saying that it's now or never on this. And I think you're seeing uh, a lot of members of the Republican conference, uh, conservatives on the outside, cringe at this because they don't think it's a very good bill. And they, uh, I think they would like to see uh, people go back to the drawing board, rewrite it from scratch, make some more attempts. Um most notably, the bill has a 17% approval rating, and you tend not to see bills with uh, you know 17% approval rating get signed into law. And in particular, you know, among um, among non-college educated whites, which are Trump's constituency, um, it is it has a negative approval rating um, or a disapproval rating um, of. 46 points. It's underwater by 46 points. Um, That's the Trump base. And so I think um, Trump is going to have to uh, do some real political jujitsu to to pull this out. Well, the other thing is, is that it just doesn't do what they set out to do. You know, 24 million people would eventually lose coverage over the next decade. And then even the latest version, uh, you know, only reduces the deficit by $150 billion, where the first version reduced it by $330 roughly billion. And so, you know, the deficit uh, reduction argument is also sort of waning as the more time goes on. But I think just broadly, I don't know how much the president and his team even ever cared about health care. I mean, I feel like this is a promise that they made to the base, but he seems quite eager to move on to tax reform. Um, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush had a good piece in the New York Times this morning talking about how four people close to Trump had said that he really wish he hadn't done health care first because that's such a political minefield. And so I feel like he's... As opposed to tax reform. <laughs> tax reform will be a political minefield, but I feel like for some reason, you know, that's closer to Trump's heart and he wants to slash tax rates and things like that. I don't feel like he's ever felt really passionate about health policy the way, say, Speaker Ryan does. 
And I feel like it's this albatross at this point, and he just wants to vote and move on one way or the other. I think that's a really smart point that Nancy's making and one that uh, you can't discount. The idea that he doesn't care that much. I mean, we've known for a long time that he's more transactional than ideological. But, I mean, there's never been a single episode or instance that I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I can't think of a single time on the trail or as president where he's made a coherent, articulate, impassioned case against Obamacare. I mean, he just uses the standard boilerplate, and it's not even that, his rhetoric's not even that sharp or impressive. So I've never really gotten the sense that uh, he, this was something that meant a lot to him. And to me, if if he was really serious about it, he's done made some feints toward, uh, toward uh, winning support over on the Hill. But if he really wanted to win this that badly, this is what he would have done. He would have gone to his most powerful platform. He would have gone to Twitter. He would have called one of the congressional members of the Freedom Caucus from the herd, and he would have torched them. He would have sent a message to everyone, this is what happens if you buck me on this bill. I will single you out on Twitter, and my several my million-strong following will haunt you. They will chase you down. They will threaten you, and they will not vote for you next time. And he did not do that, which leads me to think that – yeah, it matters to him, but not that much. I mean, that, that gets the political calculation here, right? There's been an argument from Republican leadership that uh, Republican-based voters want Obamacare repeal so badly that you need to vote for this bill because that's what we've got. And if you don't, there's going to be a lot of blame to go around. There's The base is going to be depressed in battleground districts and primary challengers are going to well up in, in safe districts. But what are the other political calculations at, at play here, Charlie? I've kind of always thought it was the resistance to Obamacare on the right was less about the substance of the, the measure and more about the symbolism of the measure. That the resistance was always grounded in the idea, uh, the hatred of a big government solution, the hatred of a big government solution imposed by a Democratic president and jammed down their throats. You know, so it was less about the particulars of the bill. So I kind of question how much uh, political damage Republicans will suffer among their base if there is no replacement. Uh, I mean, I think the, the calculus is this, this. I tend to think that it doesn't pass today and, and largely because the resistance is not from a single quarter of, of the Republican Party. And when I look at the, the modern Republican Party, I kind of think of it as, you know, uh, the Ottoman Empire circa World War One. It's falling apart. Eventually, it's going to, you know, it's the, the, the sick man of America. Eventually, it's going to become something else. And all of these different warring groups in that party, there's just too much resistance from too many different quarters. You have the moderates now. It seems like a new moderate every day. You've got the Northeasterners. Now that the Republican Party has a Northeastern wing, which it didn't have about about a decade ago, now that there's lots of members in uh, in the Northeast of New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, these are non-socially conservative, non-Sunbelt uh, conservative Republicans. There's lots of resistance, resistance there. There's lots of folks in the Freedom Caucus. You know, I think ultimately they're going to they're going to uh, give in if it's a game of chicken because they're not going to buck a president who's so popular in their districts. But still, at the end of the day, there will be members from the Freedom Caucus who can't go along. And so all of a sudden, you begin. If, if there's enough resistance in enough groups, you get to 22 very quickly. Well, I think one of the other questions is who takes the political hit for this? Um, does Donald Trump take a big political hit for this? Or is it the credibility of the Republican Congress? And uh, how much does this actually matter for President Trump? And could he possibly benefit from a uh, 
credibility of re- Republican Congress sinking? And does he begin to realize that the White House really, really needs to drive this? The, the White House did not drive um, the legislation here. They kind of took a back seat, came in at the end once the legislation had come out of the Congress. And as Charlie notes, the president, he weighed in in that he went to Congress, but he didn't wield enormous threats against Republican members to vote for this. Um, and so what will tax reform look like, something that he's really invested in? Um, I wonder what the differences will be. And I wonder, um, you know, I, ha- I I think that we'll see the White House driving it quite a bit more than they did on health care and the president uh, wielding a stick uh, a bit more than he did on this as well. Well, I've been reporting a story this week just looking ahead a little bit at tax reform. And already Gary Cohen, who is, uh, you know, a key White House advisor close to Jared and Ivanka, um, and sort of a rival to Steve Bannon in the White House, he's already telling people that, you know, he's going to be the one driving tax reform, which is probably news to Speaker Ryan, who probably thinks he'll be driving it. (laughs) Um, But I definitely think that the White House is already, you know, having meetings with Republicans on the Ways and Means Committee, Republicans on Senate Finance, and Gary Cohen is telling people that he's going to be in charge of this. So they're looking ahead to that. But I also just think the one thing about health care that the White House has to keep in mind is that the sequencing of this, you know, they wanted to do health care, they wanted to set it up to do tax reform. You know, a lot of people I've talked to have said, you know, tax reform will take a while. And so if health care kind of drags on, that's really going to screw them up to do tax reform. And people that have done tax reform in the past, like Ronald Reagan, they had that stuff done by August recess, I think even June of their first year. Wow. I want to jump back to something Eliana just said about uh, Trump kind of wielding the uh, a big stick and Running pressure on this. The biggest instance we've seen of, of pressure so far is that Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the House leadership aligned super PAC that spends in House races, pulled out money and staff from uh, Congressman David Young's district in Iowa yesterday after he said he'd vote no on this bill. And this is a swing district where the NRCC and other Republican groups spent millions of dollars in 2014 and 2016 to try and get him elected. And they, they're, they're saying, you're not with us. Sorry, we're out. Yeah, I think it speaks to the uh, what I consider to be the blast radius here, uh, the political blast radius of of this this measure. I mean, it, it hits a lot. Uh, it, it affects the party, not just in the near term. It affects not only uh, Paul Ryan and uh, the, the president's political capital, but it affects the party all across the nation. And it also affects state legislatures and uh, governors. Already you see the numbers of the three blue state Republican governors eroding a little bit. I don't think that you can pinpoint uh, the health care issue as the source of the erosion, but it's playing a role. And you got to keep in mind that remember back in 1994 and then remember in 2010 and the massive losses that the Democratic Party suffered. It was in the wake of failed major comprehensive health care reform uh, efforts. And so that's something that also colors this debate, too. So to me, you know, the smart political play is you take the loss, you cauterize the wound, you move on to tax reform, because that's really what you care about anyway. Eliana, Charlie, Nancy, any particular members that you're going to be watching later today as this vote comes up? There are a couple that have stuck out as really interesting to me. Carlos Corbello, a moderate from Florida who actually already supported a version of the bill in committee but is now undecided on the floor. And he's uh, you know, from a battleground district. Uh, who, who are you looking at, Eliana? Um, Charlie Dent and his wing. Um, where do they fall on this? Uh, the more moderate members. I think uh, in some ways they're they're more interesting than some of these uh, members of the Freedom Caucus. Um, and, you know, they could easily be uh, 
driven out by some of the concessions that uh, I think there's almost uh, too much focus on the Freedom Caucus and too, too little focus on the moderates who could be driven out. Charlie? I'm uh, the Pennsylvanian in me naturally uh, wants to take a look at the Pennsylvanians, the, the uh, suburban Republicans, uh, the Northeasterners. I'm really fascinated about the cross pressures that they're facing. But and I, and I think Eliana's right here that way too much attention has been paid to the Freedom Caucus. But I am watching some of those members, particularly the ones who who were who sit in. Uh, hardcore Trump districts, because I want to know if the laws of political gravity still apply in the Trump era, because he's blown most of them up. And the laws of political gravity say you would never buck a president of your own party who is wildly popular in your district. And in many of those Freedom Caucus districts, Trump remains wildly popular. And so I want to see, does anyone have the cojones to buck him on this? Nancy? I guess I'll be watching a couple of people, um, and maybe these are obvious picks, but I feel like, um, you know, Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus has been, like, loving this attention, you know, holding press conferences, holding courts, surrounded by reporters all the time. And I feel like the attention has been um, quite wonderful for him, or he seems to enjoy it. And I, I'll be curious to see, like, once the pressure really hits, if he uh, is still loving that attention, um, you know, around two or five today. And then also I'll just be watching, you know, what Speaker Ryan does, if he ends up getting the blame here, what his people are doing, how they're messaging it, and also what Kevin McCarthy is doing, because he has a very close relationship with Trump. And I'll be curious to see, you know, if it gets down to who takes the blame with Trump or Ryan, what ends up happening with McCarthy. I think one last name I want to throw out before we... Uh, finish up the segment here. Congressman Leonard Lance from New Jersey, I think, is in this weird political bind. He he may be the member of Congress who feels the most political pressure from both sides. And he has said he's a no. He won 54%, just 54% in his primary in 2016. And he also won just 54% in his general election in, in 2016, uh, in a district that Hillary Clinton won narrowly. And so some no matter what he does, someone is going to be angry at him. And he's decided to to vote against uh, at least so far. And I, I think that's really fascinating. All right, let's go from there into segment number two and our next data point, which is also the number two. That's the number of days this week it took the House Intelligence Committee's public hearing and investigation into Russian meddling in American politics to burst into partisan flames. Let's welcome in Chief Investigative Reporter Ken Vogel. Ken? Hi, that's me. Let's start with you. On Monday, there was this big Intel Committee hearing. FBI Director James Comey made big news. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. That was on Monday. Ken, what happened on Wednesday? Well, the focus totally shifted from uh, the Trump campaign and uh, the its possible connections to Russia and Russian meddling in the United States presidential election to Donald Trump's claim that President Obama had his wires tapped at Trump Tower. Completely unfounded claim, but the reason why the focus turned back to that is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunez, uh, held a press conference to announce that a source, in in quotes, because that's the, the word that he used, despite the fact that this is a guy who has gone on a little bit of a jihad against unnamed sources leaking classified information, he did just that, leaked classified information, saying that there was incidental collection of information 
coordination of communications related to the the Trump campaign of members of the Trump campaign and possibly Trump himself. Uh, this was seen, and you know, not only did Nunez announce it, but Nunez took it right to Trump, had a meeting with Trump, and uh, Trump announced that this was vindication of his totally unfounded claim. Now, a couple key points about this uh, Nunez episode. Number one, he said that it did not involve Russia. So we have a shifting away of the focus from Russia and, and raising questions. What did it involve? And number two, he went straight to the media rather than taking it to his fellow members of the House Intelligence Committee, which raised a bit, I think, of a justified uproar from those members about, hey, I thought we were supposed to be doing an investigation here. If the goal is to get to the bottom of this, why are you announcing this publicly? Well, I would add a third, which is that he said that the uh, intelligence picked up was incidental, um, which suggests that the uh, Trump aides or the surveillance of the president himself um, were not being intentionally surveilled by the intelligence community, which led me uh, to ask a question, which was, could this possibly um, have been sort of a tautology that uh, that Nunez Good was word. coming forward with. Yeah, I uh, really aced the SAT verbal. Uh, Excellent. Bow down. down. Yeah, bow down before me. <laughs> um, so, but is this something that could be true of any president-elect? Um, are it the intelligence community, is the intelligence community, our intelligence um, analysts monitoring the communications of all presidential aides when they're in touch with um foreign leaders and, and their aides. Um, and, and therefore, um, yeah, and intel sources are picking up um, their communications incidentally because they're monitoring what uh, foreign leaders and, and their aides are saying. I had the same exact uh, reaction as Eliana when I first saw it, you know, thinking to myself, well, if it was just incidental pickup, this could have possibly applied in other transition situations before where communications would have been incidentally picked up because lots of things, lots of conversations would get picked up incidentally. But here's where I think the, the departure was. Uh, the, it was the, the terrible breach of protocol by going public, by going to the White House, uh, by appearing to look like uh, the chairman was coordinating with the White House, and I think that's the departure. And that, to me, is the sign that Congress is just too broken. It's too polarized. It's too toxic, too disrespected to handle an investigation of this magnitude and sensitivity. Because it used to be there was a time uh, when there was at least some set of shared values. And everything was partisan. Sure, it's the House. The House has always been partisan. And it's worth noting that when they created the intelligence committees, I think it would have been the late 70s, the Senate decided to do chairman and vice chairman to uh, take away an element of partisanship. But the House, recognizing its inherent partisanship, called it the chairman and the ranking minority member. Uh, it's a tiny little uh, distinction to make, but it's still important. So even within that context of partisanship, there used to be some shared values. You could do an investigation or you could have a conversation about foreign affairs, uh, intelligence, uh, matters, you could keep it in check and they can't anymore. They're just unable to. Everything devolves into this kind of partisan food fight and everyone goes to their corner. I mean, I mean, can you even recall the last time that there was a serious congressional fact-finding investigation into a matter 
that was sort of politically oriented. We were talking about this. I mean, obviously, the Senate Watergate hearings uh, come to mind, but like I can't recall a recent one where there was like a part of where there was a political element to it where it did not just evolve into partisan, a partisan wrestling match, you know. They did a great job investigating steroids in baseball, but again, that's not a left or right <laughs> issue. I can't remember like another recent one where it, it hasn't just been a, like a, a finger pointing game like this, and and certainly that's what we're seeing. And you know, it's it's sort of a shame for for those of us who spent a lot of time digging into the Russia stuff, you know, because I think there were like high hopes that maybe this would be different. You saw some Republicans, particularly in the Senate, Marco Rubio, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, you know, really raising concerns about some of the news that had come out about Trump and Russia. And here we are talking about wiretaps and President Obama and just everything but the substance of these of these issues. Which, incidentally, we should say on during that Monday Intelligence Committee hearing that we mentioned before, the FBI director said that he had no evidence that, you know, that, that this claim of Obama tapping Trump's wires, there, there was no evidence for it. Sorry, Eliana, go ahead. So well, I actually have a question for Ken. So how do we how do we square at? Devin Nunez's claims with uh, parallel evidence that there is a real investigation into Paul Manafort, um, because that would suggest that there were there was intentional surveillance. Uh, I guess do we know that there was surveillance of Manafort, or, or where does that stand right now? We, we yeah, we still don't even know that necessarily. He was one of the folks who has been cited uh, as being under. Federal investigation, the assumption is the FBI. You know, there's four folks who sort of come to mind when you're thinking of uh, people who had a role in, in the Trump campaign or in Trump world and also had some connections to Russia. You have Roger Stone, Carter Page, Mike Flynn, Paul Manafort. Of all four of those people, Manafort is the one who, to me, stands out as having had like the most influence in both the Trump orbit and the Trump campaign, as well as in, in you know, pro-Russian, pro-Putin circles through his work abroad. There was some news about that as well this week that he had worked for this guy Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch, and that Manafort had actually drafted a proposal for work to Deripaska saying that he would advance Putin's interest on behalf of Deripaska. So that goes very much against what, what Manafort has said, that he was never working for Russia or never working for Russian interest. And, you know, he's the guy. And, he, and then he also was very influential in the Trump campaign. So it was sort of laughable then. Sean Spicer came out, tried to distance Trump from Manafort, said he was someone who had a very limited role for a very limited amount of time. We crunched the numbers and have a data point associated with that. Actually, 144 days. 144 days is the number of days that Paul Manafort was essentially running the Trump campaign. Deserves a lot of credit, frankly, for getting the, the uh, sort of the structure, traditional campaign structure around Trump to the extent that he had one. That 144 days is longer than Sean Spicer has been press secretary or that Donald Trump has been in the Oval Office. Not insignificant and kind of diminishes their effort to distance themselves from Manafort. Well, it seems to me that the communications on the Republican side of this from the president to Republican members of Congress have been so botched in sort of an inexplicable way. I could not understand why Sean Spicer, rather than saying that, yes, they understand that Manafort had business dealings with some unsavory characters, and that's precisely why he was fired from the Trump campaign, um, 
instead spent 48 hours minimizing his role on the campaign. And it took him two days, uh, essentially, to give a straight answer on that. And then Nunez as well, you know, botching uh, the delivery of his message. And I do think it highlights the importance and delicacy of communication around these matters. And it seems like uh, from the president's team to Republicans in, con- in, in Congress, they've just had a tremendously difficult time uh, getting this right. But for understand. Nunez, it's, you know, it's mission accomplished. And we should say, by the way, Nunez did apologize to the Democrats on the committee for taking this information public as opposed to bringing it to to them before, before doing so. But look, he, this is what we're talking about. This is what everyone is talking about is whether there was surveillance of Trump, not the Russia meddling in the campaign and whether Trump's campaign team was in any way involved in it. There's one thing that I don't understand about Nunez, and maybe we can engage in some wild, unfounded speculation to inform me about our this, favorite but, kind. Yeah. I mean, what is Nunez's play here? Because the, the, reason, the reason I ask that is he represents a district that is not a hardcore Trump district. I mean, that's a place where Trump won maybe 52 percent of the vote. Uh, Clinton was in the low 40s there. Uh, and by the standards of many Republicans, that is a uh, that was a pretty close race. I mean, it's not a 70 percent Trump place. So he is putting a ton of skin into the game Early on, knowing there's so much smoke out there, he is betting his career, his stature, his reputation on this. And that's what I don't understand, why he's going so strong. It's not like his constituents back home are howling for it, as they might be in some other districts. And that's what I find so curious. And the other curious thing is the the interplay between him and Schiff, because you could almost see this happening. You could see it bubbling up. If you watch their uh, one of their joint press conferences, uh, maybe it was last week, did you see where... They're just straining to keep it civil there, you know, straining to keep a bipartisan veneer. Nunez would answer something and then Schiff would walk it back a little. But they were trying to maintain some degree of decorum and civility. And then they just couldn't hold it together. Well, here's here's the big thing from this. Schiff said after this episode with with, uh, Nunez in the White House on Wednesday, he said that Nunez had cast a profound cloud over our ability to do our work on the House Intelligence Committee. So does this give more momentum to the idea or the the possibility that some sort of independent commission or special counsel or something could end up being the one that ultimately ends up looking into these Trump-Russia questions. It has to be if there's any degree of seriousness about getting to the bottom of it. I mean, I'm not sure that that will ever happen, but it's the only way. I mean, look at what they're doing. I mean, it is a clown show over there. Does anyone think there's any serious investigation going on? And, you know, on the flip side, I should say not to in any way excuse what Nunez did, because I do think, like I said, it, may, it sort of made a farce of the, the whole proceedings. But Schiff came right back on MSNBC and, and suggested that, like, oh, there was more than circumstantial evidence of collusion. So he's sort of playing the same game and trying to prosecute this in, in, in the media and not, you know, behind the closed doors of the Intelligence Committee, which is where he and other members of the committee had suggested that it best be handled. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, that's a good point to make. Like, you don't want to diminish the pressure on Schiff within his own uh, caucus. I mean, can you imagine? He has to carry uh, all of the Democrats' hopes and dreams about this investigation, and there's no way he can be soft on on this. He can't be judicious in any way. He has got to go full guns blazing. And, you know, for the most part, I think he's accorded himself quite well. I mean, I— I thought so, too. I'll tell, I'll tell a little story here that uh, when some of this stuff was first breaking and we've done you know, a lot of reporting on, on Paul Manafort and on some of the characters around this and around you know, some of the Nunez claims about the intelligence community leaking. 
And so we had a we had a story that was popping about like some uh, issue on the NSC related to leaks. And I happened it was like a Friday night. I was doing an MSNBC hit up at the four thousand one Nebraska Avenue studio in Upper Humble North. Brag. Yeah, there. <laughs> I was giving <laughs> a shout out to. Uh, you don't live up there. That's where like a lot of the journalists live is uh, the Upper Northwest neighborhood. Anyway, I'm in the hallway and don't I'm going. Don't tip the terrorists off, Ken. Right. Sorry. <laughs> four thousand one Nebraska Avenue. No. So. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, walking through the building and Schiff is coming out of his own head and I was like literally on my laptop in the car on the way up finishing up this story and I'm like oh wow this is great this is the like ranking member of the intelligence committee so I like I pigeonhole him and I'm asking him a question about this like very narrow story about that a guy on the NSC who the CIA had like rejected his top secret clearance of and the Republicans including Nunez ended up crying foul over this saying that they were out to get Trump and it was just very like nuanced thing and he knew exactly what I was talking about he knew the story even though it, we were like breaking it he knew he had already heard of this and he gave me like a very articulate answer that was like suggesting that the, the you know that there was an issue with the with the Trump uh, with the Trump folks and it ended up making the story pop a whole lot more but it just struck me as very impressive that this is a guy who was like up to speed on all this stuff even the stuff that had yet to go public I mean isn't that his job Ken it is, but I Your mean, his expectations are very low. Oh, I don't know. These members of Congress, they have so much staff who like brief them on it, particularly it's very specialized thing like this. And, and and like he had no staff. He was wearing the jeans on the bottom and the suit top, you know, like don't you do for away. your TV hits. And uh, and he just aced this question. And uh, and I think he's continued to, you know, we represent. Should, should come on Nerdcast. He totally should. He well, but that's an important point Ken's making. Like he's a serious member of Congress. And, and as we all know here, and, and I think you're alluding to this, Eliana, some of them are just not serious at all. Yes. And, you know, if they're running an investigation, you know, from the start, it's just a, a joke. But like, I mean, I think he's tried to comport himself with one. And whereas, you know, Nunez. Uh, he's also he's a former prosecutor. So he, he's sort of this is he's predisposed to being able to handle this type of situation, I would say. Yes. Yeah, so it's not quite clear to me what what Nunez's pro, approach is going to be. I mean, it's not he, he's not a you know veteran of many decades here. So, well, we're know, expecting a lot of turnover in the Trump administration. So he could be second wave CIA director or, you know, uh, maybe national security advisor, something like that. Who knows? I mean, he, he is lining. He is. I agree. He's hitching his wagon to Trump in a way that sort of puts him out there. But at this, you know, in that in the position that he's in, and given the fact that he was an early Trump campaign supporter, I, I, I think he, he doesn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. Let's take a quick break for a programming note. All this month, Politico is teaming up with podcasters all over the country to raise podcast awareness for an initiative called Hashtag Tripod. We at the Nerdcast love data. So here's another number for you. One in five Americans listens to a podcast. Scott, you're one of those podcast Americans. What are some of your favorites? Well, I started listening to podcasts in college, and I was immediately drawn to some like old classics, that, have, especially Radiolab. I love the way they use sound uh, in in there and That's mix mix everything in, but one that I've really started listening to lately, despite the fact that I'm not much of a professional basketball fan, typically is the Low Post from ESPN. It's Zach Lowe's podcast, and he I just think he's a really interesting reporter. He blends kind of traditional reporting and knowledge about basketball with this incredible. Uh, statistical stuff that the NBA is gathering from these player tracking cameras and all sorts of newfangled 
big data that they're gathering. And he just blends it all better than I think he blends data and traditional reporting better than a lot of political reporters, too. And so I just think it's it's really interesting. And it has uh, gotten me more into the NBA, actually, uh, recently. Huh, I'll have to check that out uh, after I check out a couple of recommendations from one of our listeners, Fiona, who uh, turned me on to uh, Pop Rocket and uh, Rational Security. So either way, listeners, we need your help. We want you to find one of those Americans who doesn't listen to podcasts, a friend, a relative, that cool coworker in your office like Scott. Find that person and explain to them what the heck a podcast is, where to find one, and how to listen. And when you complete that mission, tell us what you recommended with hashtag tripod. That's hashtag T-R-Y pod. All right. For our third data point this week, we're going to go a little further afield than usual. Our number is 26, and that's the share of the vote that Front National candidate Marine Le Pen is getting in polls of the French presidential election, which is coming up next month. Now, she's part of this broader populist nationalist, nativist political movement that's kind of on the rise around Europe right now that's drawing comparisons to President Donald Trump's brand of politics. And so to talk about this, we are introducing a new person to the Nerdcast this week. We've got with us Katie O'Donnell, the editor of Politico's Europe Brief, which is our daily newsletter that serves as DC's guide to European politics and policy. Katie, welcome to the Nerdcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in the French presidential election, major election coming up, first round next month, and you've got this bevy of candidates, but the one attracting the most attention, also the one who's been leading most of the first round of polling, Marine Le Pen. Tell us about her and and why she's attracting comparisons to, to President Trump at this point. So Le Pen uh, is attracting comparisons to Trump because she's also sort of this far-right populist. Um, she's pro-welfare state for the most part, but at the same time, very hardline on immigration. Um, she you know, openly speaks about Islam in sort of a negative way. Um, and given the kind of rise of the populist sentiment that you mentioned um, in Europe, there's obviously a lot of concern because France is one of the biggest economies in Europe. Um, she has been very Euroskeptical uh, pretty much her entire career. Um, and so... And the European Union is at a place of flux right now after Brexit. And right. W- which is also maybe another part of this this similar trend. Yeah, absolutely. So Brexit surprised everyone. Um, and much like Donald Trump, the polling was also off. So even though polls are indicating that uh, the centrist candidate, Macron, has pulled even with Le Pen, nobody really knows what to believe. And France is a pretty rural country. Um, But what's interesting about the way that polling has gone is that I think about 70% of uh, the French people uh, do want a kind of harder line on immigration, on Islamic integration, on um, sort of pushing back against the EU. But but at the same time, 70% or so are afraid of the National Front or Front National, uh, which is Le Pen's party. It was started by her father in 1972, and it's sort of been steadily rising in recent years. So it's kind of, I mean, that's definitely a similarity with Trump, right, where some of the the policies in, in the sense of, you know, people who in the United States want tougher border security, that's not in itself controversial. But Donald Trump was this very polarizing figure. And Le Pen is the same way. It's also interesting. You mentioned that Le Pen 
merges some of this uh, this focus on on national identity on uh, border security on things like that with uh, a focus on workers, right? With, on French workers, which again, the um, you know border security and and workers' rights were like have often been separated in the United States by just the way the two parties have uh, divided and grown over the last fifty, sixty, hundred years in Europe, where you've got parliamentary democracies you've got all these different parties there's a little more room for people to carve out niches and and that niche aligns very closely it seems to me with with what where trump tried to bring the republican Absolutely. party right the, that blend of of populism and nationalism so le pen is has been at the front of some of the polls but the way france's presidential election system works that actually doesn't count for too much right now because it, there is almost like a jungle primary situation going on right you've got a lot of people running together and eventually two of them will face off against each other right right so the the first round is april 23rd um and then the second round is three weeks later or maybe two weeks later um but basically the the con- the sort of conventional wisdom has been for some time that Le Pen will win the first round because of the protest vote, because of the plurality. You know, she draws kind of a consistent, uh, you know, likely to vote crowd. But then the thinking has been that after that, for the two weeks after that, that the socialists and Republicans would come together to sort of prevent the National Front um, from winning the presidency. And I mean, it's also interesting, too, because you have a situation where the presidential election, the second round is in May, but the National Assembly elections aren't until June. So even if she did win, there's another chance that kind of the middle, the centrists would sort of form a coalition to make sure that the National Front didn't get a majority in parliament. Mm-hmm. And, and take a toehold on power another right, way. Exactly. Um, and, and they'd probably be successful at that given the number of people who are alarmed by the National Front. And now this is not the only uh, election that we're seeing in Europe this year with populist politics coming to the fore, right? We just finished a, uh, I should say we, <laughs> the Netherlands just finished mm-hmm. a, an election, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? So uh, the prime minister, Mark Rutte, um, won re-election. He fended off Geert Wilders, who was sort of, it's unclear. There are kind of two strains of thought on the comparison of Wilders to Donald Trump. I mean, in some ways, he, you know, Politico Europe ran the story about how he was the original Trump. Um, but at the same time, there was this huge kind of like the the foreign media descended on this election and saw it as this bellwether that uh, Dutch poll watchers had noticed he'd been kind of falling since Trump took office. Um, and there is this consideration that the, you know, the Trump effect basically hurt Wilders, that people... And can you, can you, just zooming out a little bit, Wilders, what's his background? Oh, uh, this is this kind of crazy guy. Well, for his biggest sort of Trump draw is he's got this like bleached blonde pompadour. He's sort of a ridiculous looking <laughs> character. Yeah. Um, he is actually a career politician and weirdly, um, I think is actually now the longest serving member of the Dutch parliament. So kind of a strange anti-establishment type. So my understanding of Geert Wilders' advice was that he started sort of mainstream um, that after, I think, September 11th, he was sort of moving farther right on Islam in the Netherlands. Uh, and then his mentor, Pim Fortin, I'm not sure how to say that. Uh, Apologies but, to all our Dutch listeners. Yes. So. Um, he was assassinated in 2002. Right. Um, and 
that was kind of what people see as sort of the turning point for Wielders. Uh, eventually, he started his own party. He's blatantly, I mean, he's routinely referred to as anti-Islam. It's not even, you know, it's not a matter of taste mm-hmm. for how you say it. He doesn't want the Islam, doesn't want the Netherlands essentially to have Muslims, is my understanding. Um, and so he, you know, he's been under 24-hour protection. He's kind of this, he's just a strange character. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you told me an amazing anecdote about that. So the Dutch election was last week, and we only really started to get clarity on exactly what had happened in terms of actual vote counts, not not the exit polls, but the vote counts this week, because of yet another parallel between right. European and American politics right now. Right. So the Europeans are completely freaked out by Russia, uh, Russian disinformation campaigns. And uh, the Dutch decided to count all their votes by hand just to make sure that there would be no Russian hacking. Wow. And then meanwhile— and to, to be clear, in, in America, and it was talked about in the, the uh, House Intelligence Committee hearing, there's no evidence no, yeah, that no any tallies. votes were altered or hacked or anything here. Right. But the Dutch were so concerned about the possibility of this that they— right. Yeah, I mean, there, the, there has been a pretty persistent um, Russian effort in Europe— to do the same kind of disinformation that ha- that occurred in the U.S. election. Um, and then at the same time, you know, the Germans are pretty sure that they were hacked back in 2015, but they don't know when that information is going to come out. So there's, it seems like a daily drip in Europe of, oh, there's another Russian hacking. Uh, and given the concerns over that, they decided to make sure that their votes were completely safe. And this is a concern in the French election. This is a concern Absolutely. in the German elections that are coming up later this year. It's, it's right. permeating... The EU, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that Merkel would be Putin's next target, like big target. And what does that look like? I mean, is the the, the disinformation efforts? Basically, it's we did a story on how Breitbart was trying to build um, the this sort of European beachhead. And other than their uh, Breitbart London, it's been harder for them because – well, for one reason, which is kind of funny, um, the French are anti-American, so they don't want to import. Even like the French nationalists don't want anything to do with this American export. Rabble rousing, right? News but export, on, it, yeah. they also, you know, in terms of finding native speakers who can report for them, uh, they turned off a bunch of Germans when they reported this church fire completely inaccurately. Um, a firework hit this church, and they said it was this rally of Muslim men shouting al-Akbar. Like, it, there's been – Breitbart has sort of made a couple of missteps. But in terms of Russian hacking, um, you pretty much get a story, like I said, at least every week, if not every day, of new suspicions of various government parties throughout Europe having their information stolen. And then with Eastern Europe, they've been dealing with Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns you know, since the dawn of time. And money like. flowing into some, right. some efforts, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Germany is an interesting case, too, because it has a lot of ethnic uh, Russians. So there's sort of more of a toehold for actual pro-Russia sentiment as opposed to just kind of fomenting uh, nationalists sort of through trolls and whatnot. I mean, there's actually, I'm not sure of the specific number, but, you know, also there's sort of an um, simpatico element of East Germany with the Russians. So it's kind of, they have a, 
it's a difficult, you know, in some ways, Germany would be a very uh, good target for the Russians. That's interesting. I mean, there's certainly more than enough to follow in American politics right now, but I have a feeling we're going to want to check back in on this story as it develops over uh, the course of this year. Katie, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That's it for us this week. Remember, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com and please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And as always, a big thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, illustrator Bill Cookman, and researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. And thanks again to our listeners. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>